Good morning. On this, the first Sunday after Pentecost, Trinity Sunday, June 7th in the year of our Lord 2020, we gather together as the covenant community in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy Triune God, all that is, all that was, and all that ever will be belongs to you alone. You have spoken to us through your word made flesh. Now guide us into the truth by the gift of your Holy Spirit, so that we may glorify you forever and ever. Our call to worship today is Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever path passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Gather our hearts and minds together in today's colic. Almighty and everlasting God, you have given to us your servant's grace by the confession of a true faith to acknowledge the glory of the eternal Trinity and in the power of your divine majesty to worship the unity. Keep us steadfast in this faith and worship bring us at last to see you in your one and eternal glory, O Father, who with the Son and the Holy Spirit live and reign, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Since Ash Wednesday, February 26th of this year, we have taken an extended look at John chapters 14, 15, and 16. And to guide us, we have taken Frederick Dale Bruner's suggested outline. I'll remind you of that outline, that chapter 14 is Jesus' sermon about the Father, that chapter 15 is Jesus' sermon about the Son, and chapter 16 is Jesus' sermon about the Holy Spirit. So we have, through these many Sundays, expanded on the nature of the triune life. 
So during Lent, for two Sundays, we listened to Jesus tell us about his Father. And then two Sundays in Lent, we listened to Jesus tell us about himself. And then again, we spent another two Sundays, including Easter Day, hearing Jesus tell us about the Holy Spirit. And during the seven Sundays of the Easter season, and including last week's Pentecost Sunday, we took a look at the work of the Holy Spirit in the world, and then the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. And as a result, since Ash Wednesday, we have explored the nature of the triune life, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And today on the church calendar, as is every Sunday immediately after Pentecost, is what is known as Trinity Sunday. A Trinity Sunday affords us an opportunity to, to turn around, it's though as we've, we've been ascending or climbing a mountain, and now we've reached the top, and we can turn around and look back over the entire liturgical year, which started on the first Sunday of Advent, and uh, the emphasis is that we can celebrate the cooperative effort of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our salvation. So today on this Sunday, uh, before we embark into what churches, some churches call ordinary time, we pause to praise the triune life. So with that in mind, look with me at our gospel selection today, taken from Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. The gospel of our Lord according to St. Matthew. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. The title of today's message is The Triune Life. Actually, uh, the longer title is The Triune Life, the model for diversity in unity. It is unfortunate that the last words of Jesus recorded for us by St. Matthew have become a seedbed for so much controversy. In these words, 
Jesus is giving us a standing order, an exact and specific listing of what he expects from his church. It is as though the disciples have asked him, now what is it that you want us to do exactly? And it seems that over the last 2,000 years, we have missed the message of these marching orders in so many ways. We have typically referred to these last words as Jesus' great commission. Dallas Willard wrote a book entitled The Great Omission, in which he accused the church of getting it wrong by concentrating on making Christians, but not necessarily making disciples. And regrettably, that is just one example of the controversy that has settled around this passage. Christian church does not agree on who Jesus is. It does not agree about what should be taught to his followers. It has not yet taken the gospel to every race, and that for a multitude of reasons. It does not agree on how those who have been evangelized, taught, baptized, and discipled of every tribe, kindred, race, and tongue, does not agree on how they should be baptized. And the church has a variety of eschatological schemes that explore the nature of Jesus' promise to be with us to the very end of the age. In some ways, it seems as though Jesus has left so many things unsaid that he has purposely thrown open the door to interpretive chaos. Uh, We don't even know for sure the exact location of this mountain that is referenced in the text. And I probably don't have to remind you that it was a motley crew that assembled, for Matthew tells us that while some were there to worship, others still doubted. This kind of liturgical worship uh, still continues to our time. We will never, in this life, worship Jesus without doubt present. So, the question that I'm going to ask now is, was this a mistake? Should Jesus have handed out a disciple's handbook, a sort of uh, operator's manual or instruction manual, freshly mimeographed on this unnamed mountain? Should he have been more dogmatic in his instructions? Uh, And should he have, pardon the pun, left nothing to doubt? Now, as miserable as the track record of the Christian church has been in fulfilling the Great Commission, I'm going to suggest to you today that it was not a mistake, but that what we have represented in this passage in the Great Commission is the holy genius of Jesus at work. 
Years ago, on a Sunday morning after church, I was helping a dear saint get out of her wheelchair and into her car. She was living out the last days of her life as best she could. Just before she stood up to safely slide into the front seat, she looked up at me and said, Brother Alan, I just want a preacher who will tell me what I need to do. It was, as I understood it then, a critique of the message which she had just heard me preach. I was talking at that time about navigating uncharted territory in the future kingdom. And what she was telling me was that she wanted to be assured with familiar certainties. I took her uh, declaration, her request to heart. It was, after all, a sincere request made by a longtime member of the sheepfold to her shepherd. Over the years, however, I have discovered that the truth that actually changes a person is self-discovered. My responsibility has always been to tell people what needs to be done by exploring the multitude of possibilities that exist, all within the textual framework of the Bible. Now, this is not an easy or even an advisable way to build a church. The easy way to build a church is to become a, a shaman or to become a showman or to become a shyster and convince people that you have received a word from God that is absolutely exclusive. But the truth is, truth takes time. There are no shortcuts. There are no series of books for dummies that can ever substitute for doing the necessary legwork. We often hear from the critics of the confessional church that Christianity should be pragmatic. It's the common plea. And by pragmatic, what they're really saying is, give us something that is easily achievable. You've heard of the phrase, kiss. Keep it simple, stupid. I passed by a church building the other day, and apparently that church, according to the sign, it's called Simple Church. I've never been there. I don't know what they're doing. But frankly, I don't think there is anything simple about church. And simply church, I could agree with. Simplified church, well, I could get that. But simple church just makes me think of a synonym for a simple, ordinary. There is nothing ordinary about Christ's church. I have at times been dismayed by the diversity that is on display in Christ's church. I've heard countless sermons and 
read an equal amount of books and articles about Christ's supposed unanswered prayer in John 17, that the church, quote, may become perfectly one. In his high priestly prayer, he makes this request three times. Personally, I think the suggestion that a petition thrice offered by the Father's own Son has not been answered is at best audacious and quite possibly at its worst blasphemy. He who prefaced his every request with, I do always those things that please you, is not easily nor ultimately refused. If we look more closely at the text in the high priestly prayer of Jesus, it would help us from uh, preventing us from promoting such ideas. How are we to be one? Well, uh, look with me at John chapter 17 and verse 21. Uh, this is Jesus praying. That, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. This petitioned oneness quote-unquote, oneness, is peopled with persons. It's a crowd in that verse. Look in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Remember last week we talked about the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I have given that glory to them, for the express purpose that they may be one, even as we are one. So, hear me out on this. The unity of the church is to be modeled on the oneness of the Father and the Son. How were the Father and Son one? Uh, to answer that question requires a study of the nature of the triune life, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The vaunted desire for unity in the church is in peril when we neglect the doctrine of the Trinity. Jesus continues his request in verse 23, I in them and you in me. Now, it's quite the crowd, that they may become perfectly one. Again, how is this perfection to be achieved in the midst of so many persons? How is the Great Commission that all people everywhere would be touched by the going church how is the Great Commission to be ultimately accomplished? My response is by recognizing that diversity or otherness and unity, what we might term as oneness or sameness, are complementary and not mutually exclusive. 
So the classic definition of triune life is this. First, that there is only one God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. People who confess this truth do not believe in three gods. That would be tritheism, and that is condemned everywhere in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. So if we have a father, and if we have a son, and if we have a Holy Spirit, it sounds like we have more than one. So what's the solution? Well, it took 300 years of arguing in the church to come up with an answer. And here's the answer. All three share the same substance or essence. Now, Jesus suggests this ability to interpenetrate one another. It's a kind of divine osmosis. So Jesus uses phrases like, the Father is in me, or I am in the Father. Uh, Paul, in the book of Galatians, in his great song of praise, says, I am crucified with Christ. How is that possible? Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives within me. So in that sense, there is only one spirit that animates. Or a better word for it, there is only one spirit that unctionizes the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and consequently, it also indwells or unctionizes you and I as believers. But the oneness of that essence does not preclude the distinction that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And consequently, you and I as believers who are indwelt with this same one essence. So the correct teaching of triune life has to comply with two rules that exist in tension. The substance or essence, the one spirit, cannot be divided, but the distinction between the persons must be maintained. So... Again, we could say that the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Christian church believes in one God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, analogy, which is not perfect, and there are no perfect analogies, but this might help us to understand it better. An analogy is that you and I are a person. Uh, you're a person, I'm a person. Uh, we share some common attributes as human beings. It's called uh, the common human experience. But you are you, with all of your distinctives, 
and I am me with all of my distinctives, and aren't you happy that you aren't me? We know what it is to share a common humanity, but I will never be you, and you will never be me. Our oneness in the church, our unity as the church, is to be modeled on this example, the example of the triune life, diversity in the midst of unity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share a common life, but in the midst of that common union, what we sometimes refer to as communion, in the midst of that common union, they maintain their own distinctive roles, personalities, and persons. Again, listen to what Jesus prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. The triune life is an us. It is also a oneness. And maybe it would be uh, best to coin a new word, one us, O-N-E dash U-S, one us. The church, as the body of Christ, is to put on display for the world, because this is how the world will come to know Jesus, we're to put on display for the world a non-contradictory, yet fully paradoxical portrayal of unity in the midst of diversity and diversity in the midst of unity. Now, there's a lot of people that don't agree with this. The Restoration Movement says that the church uh, that is seen in the book of Acts is the perfect model. That within about 300 years after the day of Pentecost, the church fell away and has been only imperfectly modeled for the last 1,700 years. Uh, God has, according to this model, restored certain truths that were missing as he occasionally brings revival and reform. In the words of the prophet, here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept. Every subsequent denomination has hailed itself as the church that has got something more right than the denomination that preceded it. The new kid on the block, the latest faddish expression of the ecclesiastical flavor of the century, elbows its way to the top of the crowd by wagging its finger at those who immediately precede and preaches a message that follows a predictable trajectory. The denomination usually starts with a man, it turns into a movement, and ultimately fades away as a monument. Tracts are printed asking the question, which church is the right church? People are convinced in this model that out there somewhere, the perfect church exists, if only we can get the right 
formula, the most pleasing recipe, maybe grandma's recipe. The necessary criticisms are accumulated and published. A plea is made for ostensibly unity, but really what they're saying is we insist on you seeing it our way. And this unity, this proposed unity, usually revolves around a person or a truth or an experience. So in this model, there are those who are convinced that the church is supposed to exist in some kind of goose-stepping, cookie-cutter, boring sameness. And yet the model which the triune life displays for us is this strange alchemy, this strange mixture of sameness and difference. One of the most vicious lies which has been propagated by Christians of various stripes is that you can't be a part of us, you can't be included and sign up for this thing called our church until we are fully convinced that you believe everything exactly the same way we believe it. There is a word for this, cult. Instead of celebrating the church in all of its much splendor diversity, we have in a curmudgeonly fashion rained on the parade. Which church is the right church? Uh, I have the answer for that. Wrong question. Every church expression, it is true, gets it wrong somewhere. Some more than others, some less than others, but nobody has a perfect track record. Every church, on the other hand, gets it right about something. And God has consistently reserved the right to reject every application submitted by any confessing entity to claim exclusive rights to represent him. And his absolute outright rejection of those applications aggravates us, especially when we reserve, when we uh, receive the Rejected application. It's, it's stamped with the big red letters. Reject it. When the presentation bouquet, which the head florist is creating, is ultimately finished, we will find flowers and blooms and grasses and petals from a diversity of expressions that Jesus will one day present to himself a church without spot and wrinkle. So today we celebrate triune life. And whether we understand it or not, we celebrate the diversity expressed in the unity of the church. I want to say this, that organic unity already exists. Jesus' prayer has been answered. We only need to recognize it for what it is. And in that recognition, we are day by day to commit ourselves to its continuous spread until 
the whole earth is full of his glory. Last week we saw that Pentecost taught us that God is no respecter of persons. That out of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation, he has called people unto himself. We still sing the song, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight, even if they may not be precious in our sight. The church of Jesus Christ, the only thing that made him mad, that he cleared the temple out, the church of Jesus Christ is a church, a house of prayer for all nations. In 1 Corinthians 12, 4, Paul tells a fractious and divided church, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Then he goes on to list nine diverse giftings and concludes in verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Then a new paragraph that continues the same principle, but with a different metaphor in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, So it is with Christ, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. I like the uh, New International Version translation of that last phrase. We were all given the one spirit to drink. Again, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, And then he says, but grace was given to each one of us. There is the unified perichoretic, if I could put it that way. Uh, Perichoresis is the doctrine of the interpenetration of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is the unified perichoretic divine osmosing church where the one spirit has free access to all, and there on the same page is each individually graced believer. Now this kind of cooperative effort, making for peace, making for unity in the midst of our expressed diversity. The church is not called to express 
personal distinctives. We're called to, in the midst of one spirit, to celebrate each other. We're called to maintain the dignity of the person while, all the while, acknowledging that we are pursuing the greater purpose. I love this quote by G.K. Chesterton. He says, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. In the last few months, and especially the last two weeks, our nation has undergone a severe trial. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And we have experienced this kind of shaking. Everything that can be shaken is getting shook right now. And I believe that there's more shaking to come. The words of the gospel song, people get ready. There's a train coming. You don't need no baggage. You just get on board. All you need is faith to hear the diesels coming. You don't need no ticket. You just thank the Lord. Listen, here's the application. If you are a white person who has trouble with people of color, you best leave that baggage on the landing and rush to get a seat. Get over it. Cross over that Jordan or get out of the way. There's a train coming. People, get ready. There's a train to Jordan. Picking up passengers coast to coast. Faith is the key. Open the doors and board them. There's hope for all among those loved the most. In the next few months, here it is the application of the doctrine of the triune life. In the next few months, go out of your way to find somebody different from you and love on them a bit. It may feel awkward, and it may feel strange, but take a drink of the one spirit and grow bold in love. There ain't no room for the hopeless sinner who would hurt all mankind just to save his own. Have pity on those whose chances grow thinner, for there is no hiding place against the kingdom's throne. Listen, if you've hurt others, ask the Lord to change your mind, heart, and soul. Do the right thing. And if you've been hurt, let the healing waters flow into the deepest recesses of your pain until the memory loosens its grip and is washed away in the blood of Jesus and drowned in the sea of God's forgetfulness. People, get ready. There's a train coming. You don't need no baggage. Just get on board. What do I need? All you need 
is faith. To hear the diesels humming, the purchase price has been paid on Calvary's Hill of Sorrows. You don't need no ticket. Just thank the Lord. It could be that we're hearing the last call to get on board. Where are we going? Uh, I'm not sure exactly, but I do know this. It's going to be good when we get there. Do we have enough to get wherever it is that we're headed? I'm thinking that we do. I just spoke to the conductor, the engineer, and the fireman, and they said with one voice, sure enough, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Amen. Thank you, Father, that even today you're speaking to your church. And it's not that you're trying to speak, you have spoken. It is that we are trying to hear this word. We ask even now that you would give ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, and we ask it in the name of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.